pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that by the power of your word, you uphold all things through the wonders of your grace. Lord, we pray now that you would help us to preach that word, that very same word, and that you would help us to believe that word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, recently it came to my, I mean, this is kind of hard to talk about, a little shocking, but uh, recently it came to my attention that some people here in the sanctuary, I've heard, struggle with, with faith. And without faith, it's impossible to, to experience salvation, to know salvation. And so we're going to deal with it right now. In 1078 AD, the Archbishop of Canterbury, St. Anselm, presented the ontological argument for the existence of, of God. Anselm said, imagine a being greater than which none can be conceived. Now suppose, could you imagine that? Now suppose that that being does not exist. If you did that, that being greater than which none can be conceived is a being of which a greater can be conceived, and that's obviously impossible, so that being greater than which none can be conceived must exist. That being is God. In other words, God's non-existence is inconceivable. It's actually a fascinating argument if you, if you, if you dig into it. In the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas presented the fivefold uh, cosmological argument. Basically, if you take the sum total of all caused things, there must be an uncaused cause that causes all those things. An uncaused cause, an unmoved mover, necessary beingness. Brilliant argument. And if you don't get it, maybe you're not smart enough to get it or get faith. At the beginning of the 19th century, William Paley presented the teleological argument, the argument from design, basically that the universe is like a watch if you closely observe it, and therefore there must be a watchmaker. If you, don't, uh, if, if you don't follow that, well, maybe you'll follow Immanuel Kant. In the 19th century, Kant doubted uh, the teleological argument, but formulated the moral argument. He said, it's obvious that there is a moral law in the universe, and so therefore there must be a moral law giver. Well, if you don't sense the moral law, maybe you're not good enough to sense the moral law giver, not smart enough or not good enough to get faith. You know, at the dawn of the 21st century, science has basically proven or shown that the entire cosmos sprang into existence out of nothingness, and physicists have demonstrated that matter is dependent upon an observer. So if we are matter that matters, obviously somebody is observing us. And of course, even more importantly, we now have vast libraries of ancient manuscripts, historical validation testifying to the fact that God not only existed, but died and rose again from the grave. And you have the testimony of your own personal experience, how Jesus has worked in your life. Or maybe the, um, um, Aaron, stop it. Would you stop playing that music? I, I'm, tr I'm trying to prove the existence of God here. I mean, do, do, you, not, do you not want these people to have faith? Is there, is Gosh. Well, anyway, I'm just saying that you got to be, like, stupid or pretty bad not to believe. And if you don't believe me, just watch this movie. What do you say to people that are offended by your show because you pray to Jesus in every episode? We disown him, he'll disown us. 
when a 12-year-old watches his mother dying of cancer. A God who would allow that is not worth believing in. Life is really a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. I'm Professor Radisson. This is philosophy 150. I would like to bypass senseless debate altogether and jump to the conclusion which every sophomore is already aware of. There is no God. All that I require from each of you is that you fill in the papers I've just given you with three little words. God is dead. Mr. Wheaton, is something wrong? I can't do what you want, I'm a Christian. If you cannot bring yourself to admit that God is dead, then you will need to defend the antithesis. So your acceptance of this challenge may be the only meaningful exposure to God and Jesus they'll ever have. See, to me, he's not dead. I don't want anyone to get talked out of believing in him just because this professor thinks they should. Mr. Wheaton, are you ready? God's not dead, he's surely alive. existence you know the truth so why do you hate him it's a very simple question why do you hate god god's not dead he's surely alive yeah take that kevin sorbo you're not so tough now are you hercules <laughs> james 1 6 the doubting man is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that a double-minded man unstable in all his ways will receive anything from the lord so now that we've settled that, let's look at our text for the morning. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, not John the Presbyterian, but John the Baptist. When John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? Yikes. See what just happened? John the Baptist just doubted Jesus the Christ. And John isn't stupid. John isn't immoral. But he doubted. And just think of it. John is Jesus' cousin. John would have heard the miraculous stories of his birth since he was a child. He saw the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. He heard the voice come from heaven saying, Look, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Scripture says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. He was so devoted to God that he gave up everything to wander into the desert, dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts and prophesying, preaching the, the Word of God. And he, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin doubted. Jesus must be pretty offended. Verse 4. And Jesus answered them, these messengers from John the Baptist, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus, Jesus gave an answer, but it's not really an argument or, or an explanation. Actually, John already knows this stuff. Verse 2, that's why he sent the messengers to, 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 talk, to talk to Jesus. He'd heard about this. But, but you see, this isn't an argument. 
It's more like a song, actually. It's a prophetic song from Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Then, you see, by quoting Isaiah 35 and saying healing is now, grace is now, Jesus is saying the vengeance of God is happening now through me. That's some freaky weird vengeance. Verse 5, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Scandalizo is the Greek. It's where we get our word scandalized. What a strange thing to say. Who on earth would be scandalized by such free and rampant grace? Well, how about John? John's in prison. <laughs> Soon to be beheaded, like we talked about last week. If, if, John, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm John, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, cousin, that's great. That's just great about the blind and the lame and the, and the deaf and the lepers and everything. But did you notice? I'm in prison. I hear you turned water into wine. But did you notice? I've never tasted wine. I hear that you party with tax collectors and sinners. But did you notice? I've been wandering in the desert for decades, eating locusts, talking about you. That's great about your superpowers and your amazing grace. But how about a little vengeance on my behalf? How about a little superpower comes down here and, you know, kicks Herod's ass? I mean, of all people, don't you think I deserve it? I work for you, Jesus. Maybe you could work a little for me. If I was John, I'd be offended. Are you offended? You know, Isaiah, Peter, St. Paul, they refer to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Did you know this as the ultimate or the, the scandalon, the offense of this world? And why is Jesus a scandal? Well, because he's God. And just look at him. He's hanging on a tree. I mean, just think how that was for the disciples and for, for, for Mary. They worked for him. They worked for him, and then he went and died on them. He chose to go to Jerusalem and, and die. The disciples fled, you know, but Mary, she stayed there at the tomb weeping, even though God himself appeared to be dead. You know, um, after all I've been through in this life, I don't think I do a whole lot of doubting of God's existence, but sometimes I feel like God is dead, or at least dead to me, like he went and just died on me, he's forsaken me. Well, John, of all people, John the Baptist doubted and may have been offended. Verse 6, Jesus said, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So is he going to rip on John? 
He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way uh, before you. And then it goes on to say, Behold, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He's like a refiner's fire. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Wow! I mean, if John is offended with Jesus, Jesus is not offended with John. He says, no one is greater among those born of, 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 of women. That, that would include a lot of folks, including Moses and Elijah. We're pretty sure those guys got into heaven for a few chapters are going to show up on the Mount of Transfiguration with the glowing, floaty Jesus. I mean, that's impressive, right? Well, according to Jesus, few, if any, were smarter or better than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist doubted. It seems that Jesus expected the doubt. It seems that Jesus even arranged for the doubt. You know, for some reason, we Christians make it sound like faith is a result of good behavior or working through some complicated equation and figuring out because you're smart enough or, or good enough. You know, so I, I used to wonder, I remember, because I had a teacher like the teacher in that film up there, I, I used to really wonder, why doesn't God provide a watertight proof for his own existence? Why do I seem to be more concerned about proving the existence of God than God seems to be concerned about proving the existence of God? Why doesn't Jesus just appear to all the doubters the way he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus? You know, booyah, there you go. How about, how about that, Richard Dawkins? Here I am, glory floaty Jesus. How come he doesn't do that? Why didn't Jesus come down off the cross when the Pharisees said, if you're the Christ, come down? And why didn't he appear resurrected before Herod, Pilate, the Roman Senate, instead of, instead of appearing to just, you know, like this weeping woman, Mary, outside? of his tomb. Honestly, in the Gospels, it's like Jesus goes out of his way to make sure that no one has to believe, but that there's always room for doubt. You, you know what I mean? I mean, in places in Scripture, it says things like this, that he would not or could not perform a sign for them because they did not believe. I would think he would perform a sign for them so that they could believe. But he acts like the sign might keep them from believing, at least the way he wants them to believe, as if blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, as if that somehow really matters to him, as if he wants us to believe because, well, we really want to believe, as if he wants us to want to believe. Karl Barth wrote this, note well, in all the Bible of the Old and New Testaments, not the slightest attempt is made to prove God. And think about this. If, if you did prove God in your own like personal laboratory, if you were to prove God, would that be God? And if you tried to prove God, what would you prove him with? Reason? 
Scripture says that God is reason. Logos is how you say it in the Greek. So asking, is the existence of God reasonable, is asking, is the existence of reason reasonable? And God is the truth. And so asking, is God true, is asking, is truth true? To ask, does God exist, is to assume, assume the answer. He, he is existence. He's amness. I am that I am. So how could I ever prove God? And yet, we all assume God. In fact, we have to assume God just to doubt God. You have to assume truth and existence just to ask, is it true that God exists? Actually, you have to assume God to doubt anything. Uh, to doubt what's true, you have to believe in the truth. To doubt what's real, you have to believe in reality. To doubt what's good, you have to believe that there is this thing called the good. To doubt nothing, at least in this world, is inhuman, right? But to doubt everything is insane. Because if you doubt everything, you have nothing left to doubt with. If I say, doubt everything, then I must doubt that I should doubt everything, which means believing something. If I say, oh, well, you'll never know, <laughs> well, then you don't know that you'll ever know, which means that you do know, which means that you know that you'll never know, but you just said that you didn't know, and so you, so you do know, but, but you don't know. If I say there's no truth, then that statement is untrue, that there is no truth, and there is truth, but uh, that's illogical, it's insane. Maybe to doubt everything, is to be the doubting man that James talked about. The doubting man makes doubt into his God, into his idol. He doubts in order to protect himself from the truth. To like, you know, kill the truth or crucify the truth. And Jesus is the truth. He doubts because he doesn't want to believe. But if you doubt because you want to believe, I think that's called seeking the truth. And Jesus is the truth. And he said, seek and you will find, probably because you've already been found. That's why you're seeking. That kind of doubt is a little truth in you, seeking more truth because you want the truth. It's wanting to believe in the truth. All that to say that maybe the real issue is not whether or not you're smart enough to believe the truth or good enough to believe the truth, but do you want to believe the truth? Maybe God arranges all things so that you might doubt the truth, so that you wouldn't have to believe the truth so that you might actually want to believe the truth. I mean, kind of like the truth is playing hard to get, you know what I mean? So that we would fall in love with the truth the way the truth has already fallen in love with us. In other words, the real issue is not proving that, that God's not dead, but wanting God to be alive when it appears that he is dead. Earlier this week, I watched that movie, God's Not Dead, and I need to just say that it was profoundly cheesy. There's just an amazing amount of cheese. But it made some good points. And, and it turns out that the professor, played by Kevin Sarbo, didn't, didn't believe because he didn't want to believe, because he was offended at God, because when he had worked for God, God didn't work for him. 
In the end, he gets hit by a car. And as he's dying, the pastor tells him to believe so that he'll get into heaven and won't go to hell. And so he says something like, I believe in, in Jesus. And yet, you know, as I watched it, I thought he is still terribly offended at Jesus. If you believe in Jesus because you have to, because you lost an argument or want to get into heaven and avoid hell, I don't think you believe in Jesus. You're actually offended at Jesus. You want everything that Jesus has to offer except Jesus. You're using God, but you don't trust his heart, who is Jesus. When we argue people into heaven or scare people into heaven, I think we may keep them from heaven. If we just give them more reason to be offended at, at Jesus. Well, anyway, Jesus sends word to John in prison saying, blessed is he who is not offended at me, by me, in me, with me. Blessed is he who likes me, not just because of what I can do for him. Blessed is the woman who sits outside my tomb and weeps for me, not offended at me, who wants me, even though I can do nothing for her, because it appears as if I'm dead. You know, John's not asking, does God exist? That's really kind of an absurd question that I think we kind of came up with somewhere along in the 20th century. John is asking, is Jesus the revelation of God's heart? And if so, do I like him? John is asking Jesus exactly what Jesus is asking John. John, are you offended at me? John, I make blind people see and deaf people hear. I set captives free who do not deserve to be set free. And John, look, you're still in prison. Do you still like me? John, I create and sustain all things. Yes, yes, I, I create all things, but that's, yes, that's me in the tomb. Do you still want me when I'm weak, when I'm emptied of all my power? John, do you love love when love doesn't work for you? John, do you love love when there's no reason to love but love? John, do you love me when I'm dead? For then, John, you will have loved me in freedom. For no other reason, you will have loved me in freedom. And then you will love me like Mary on Easter morning when your morning turns into dancing, dancing that is itself perfect freedom. Do you love me? One of my favorite books of all times is uh, by an old Romanian pastor, I think he's passed away now, Richard Wormbrand, the book In God's Underground. He spent 14 years in Romanian prison cells under the communists and under the Nazis. Toward the, toward the end, they brainwashed him. They locked him in this room with a loudspeaker that would blare the same message over and over and over again. Christianity is dead. Christianity is dead. Christianity is dead. No one loves you. No one loves you. No one loves you. And he said after a time, he believed that message. 
And then he thought of Mary, how she heard Jesus cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then how she sat outside of his tomb weeping. And so when he believed Christianity was dead, this is what he would say to himself, even so, I will believe, and I will weep at its tomb until it rises again, as it surely will. Now, Wormbrand said Christianity, but I think Christianity is the body of Christ. You know, for years I was offended at that story and the way Richard Wormbrand ended his book. But I don't believe Jesus was offended. For Richard Wormbrand and Mary of Magdalene wanted Jesus when Jesus did not work for them. They wanted Jesus, just Jesus. And so you see, maybe in order to truly believe, we will each have to have an appointment with doubt, such that after seeing God work and God bless and God do mighty and wonderful miracles, we'll each have to spend some time in that cell with John the Baptist and a choice will have to be made. Do we want Jesus? Do we want to believe in Jesus? Just Jesus. Hmm. Frederick Buechner writes, without somehow destroying me in, in the process, how could God reveal himself in a way that would leave no room for doubt? If there were no room for doubt, there would be no room for me. What is me? I mean, I don't know quite how to say this, but the older I get, the less I doubt God's existence. And the more I doubt my own existence. I mean, I, mean, I wonder, who am I? What, what am I? I'm Peter Hyatt, born of Eve and Evelyn, born of these women. I'm flesh and blood with a resume of good deeds and bad deeds. I'm, I'm this old me that's fragile and yeah, is fading away. <laughs> But I'm also something else, a new me, that is faith, hope, and love. And each of those things is a choice, but not made by me, made in me, like a choice that is me. I don't know if I said that right. Wait, wait, Jesus goes on, verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I mean, what a thoroughly bizarre thing to say, right? I mean, in a little while, Jesus is going to say this. You must become like a child to enter the kingdom, and of such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus told us John wins the entire human holiness race. John wins. He's the winner. He's the very best of those born of women. He's the pinnacle of the law and the prophets. What can a child do better than John the Baptist? Next verse, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Well, men of violence had just tried to take the kingdom of heaven by taking John by force, right? That's what Herod was doing. Soon they'll take King Jesus by force. 
The sons of Adam take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by force. The experts in the law, that's the knowledge of good and evil, they take Jesus by force, nail him to a tree by force. They take his body broken and blood shed by force. Maybe we all try to take the kingdom of heaven by force. You know, we work for God so that he'll work for us. We try to fulfill the law, so God has to give us the kingdom. We think to ourselves, either consciously or unconsciously, you know, you have to bless me, King Jesus, for I fulfilled the law and the prophets. No one had more right to say that in the history of the world than John the Baptist. Yet Jesus says, John 10, 8, all who came before me were thieves and robbers. That would include John. Gosh. So Jesus claims that John was the very best of all thieves and robbers, but still a, a thief and, and robber. Verse 12, the violent take the kingdom by force for or, or because the prophets and the law prophesied. I mean, it's like the prophets and the law made them try to take the kingdom by force, by force. Like the law came in to increase the trespass or something. Anyway, the law and the prophets prophesied. They prophesied. That means that the law wasn't about the law. And the prophets really weren't about the prophets. The whole Old Testament was about something else. Like every law, every prophecy was a note and a song. And until you hear the song, you will not understand the meaning of each note. You, you might take a note and play a note, but have no clue as to the song. Actually, you'd kind of like crucify the song by taking the note. Anyway, Jesus says, all the prophets and law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, this is weird because I guess John didn't always have ears to hear, and he wasn't always willing to accept it because in John 1.21, John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah. And right here, Jesus clearly says, he is Elijah who is to come. So like maybe there's a John who didn't hear the music and didn't know who he was, and a John who heard the music and became who he was. Maybe there's a Peter Hyatt born of women, and a Peter Hyatt who is to come. Well, in verse 18, Jesus said, there's none greater among those born of women than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. <sighs> Moses and Elijah get in, blah, 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 blah. I mean, maybe, maybe John isn't only born of women, but John is or will be born of the Spirit. Jesus said to Nicodemus, remember, unless one is begotten from above, and some translate it born too, but it means begotten or born, unless one is begotten from above, he cannot see the kingdom. He, he has no capacity for the kingdom. And then he says, that which is begotten of the flesh is flesh, and that which is begotten of the spirit is spirit. So if I'm begotten of the spirit, it means like I have a, a man of flesh born of women and a new man of spirit born of spirit. 
The man born of, of women is Peter Hyatt, born of Eve, and then a bunch of other women, and then Evelyn, flesh and bone with, with a resume. That man, born of women, born of flesh, is the Peter Hyatt that I think I make with my willpower and my knowledge of good and evil. When that Peter Hyatt hears that he's justified by faith, what does that Peter Hyatt try to do? He tries to make faith. He tries to create faith. But it's not faith, at least not in God. It's faith in Peter's ability to earn God or capture God. Well, that Peter Hyatt, born of women, is incredibly offended by grace. Free and absolute grace. Kind of pisses him off. Because I deserve, I need, I want, I'm jealous. And I suspect that John the Baptist, born of women, was offended by Jesus. He had heard tales of this amazing grace, but if anyone deserved grace, damn it, it was John. And yet grace deserved is not grace. So that John, born of women, would have been offended by grace he actually couldn't even see grace and was incapable of faith in grace. That John needed to die. In fact, John himself said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. John said that. But I went around and around in my head this, this week, going, but, but which John said that? Maybe John was born of women and born of the Spirit. You know, when we cry, Abba, Father, is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, that we are begotten from above. With what? With a seed, with some kind of eternal seed that, that is a word. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Jesus is the word, and the word is a seed, and he takes root in our souls. We, we are saved by grace through faith, and this faith is not of ourselves, lest uh, any should boast. Well, John the Baptist, born of women, who had more reason than anybody in the world to boast, maybe would have been scandalized by grace. But John the Baptist, born of the Spirit, would have faith in grace, faith by grace. Faith is a gift of the Spirit, says the Scriptures. Faith in me is Christ Jesus begotten in me. So faith is not a work that I can be proud of. Faith is a gift that I must be grateful for. Faith is not the answer to an equation that you are smart enough or good enough to figure out. Faith is divine. Like we said last week, it's a miracle. Faith is what Adam and Eve lacked in the garden before the fall. And faith is what Jesus gives. Faith is the creation of God through the power of the word. Faith is not a choice I make, but the choice Christ Jesus makes in me. The moment I become proud of faith, I lose faith. The moment I become proud of faith, I lose faith, I crucify the Messiah, and I cannot love for I am offended by grace. I cannot trust grace. And what can little children do? that John the Baptist really had a hard time doing. Well, children can trust grace. Children can receive gifts. Children can believe. 
Little children are not self-conscious. Little children can lose themselves easily because they don't have a whole lot of self to lose. Little children can just weep like at the drop of a hat and little children can dance. Verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What's wrong with children like that? They sound grown up. And if we're to be like born again, maybe we need to be born as, as children. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Or as some ancient manuscripts read, wisdom is justified by her children. She stood a short distance from her guardian at the park this afternoon, writes Robin Gunn. Her distinctive features revealing that although her body blossomed into young adulthood, her mind would always remain a child's. My children ran and jumped and sifted through perfect, sifted sand through perfect coordinated fingers. Caught up in fighting over a shovel, they didn't notice when the wind changed, but she did. A wild autumn wind spinning leaves into amber flurries. I, I called to my boisterous son and jostled my daughter. T time to go. Mom still has lots to do today. My rosy-cheeked boy stood tall, watching with wide-eyed fascination the gyrating dance of the Down syndrome girl as she scooped up leaves and showered herself with a twirling rain of autumn jubilation. With each twist and hop, she sang deep, earthy grunts, a canticle of praise meant only for the one whose breath causes the leaves to tremble from the trees. Hurry up, let's go, seatbelts on, I start the car. In the rearview mirror, I study her one more time through misty eyes, and then the tears come. Not tears of pity for her, the tears are for me for I am far too sophisticated to publicly shout praises to my creator. I am whole and intelligent and normal, and so I weep because I will never know the severe mercy that frees such a child and bids her come dance in the autumn leaves. I think that dance is called faith. Faith is not comprehending God. Faith is being comprehended by God. All sorts of biologists and meteorologists comprehend wind and leaves and trees, but very few of them dance in the autumn leaves. Faith isn't comprehending the reason. Faith is being comprehended by the reason. Faith isn't comprehending the music. Faith is surrendering to the music. It's hearing the music, being animated by the music and beginning to dance uh, to the music. Faith is not seizing control, faith is surrendering control. Faith is losing yourself in the music and then finding yourself in the dance. The dance is love. 
And God is love. And faith is freedom. Robin Gunn writes, I will never know the severe mercy that frees such a child and bids her come dance in the autumn leaves. I will never know. Well, I wouldn't be so sure, Robin. I think John the Baptist met the severe mercy. It was the grace of God in Christ Jesus. It was the word of God. John, I give sight to the blind. I make the deaf hear. I forgive sinners. I release captives. And John, you're still a captive. Your works, even though, even though your works are the greatest of those born of women, you're still a captive. Are you offended? Is your pride offended? Is your arrogance offended? For, for proud, arrogant people, John, can't dance. But little children can dance. Are you offended? See, it was grace that did the offending. Gifts given to those considered least deserving and gifts not given to one considered most deserving. The prison was grace. The doubt was grace. The words of Jesus were grace. That grace must have offended and killed John's old man and, and I think must have given birth to his new man, a child. The child of faith. Actually, I bet, this is what I think, I bet it was John's new man that caused him to surrender his old man. It was his faith that caused him to surrender his doubts. Never hang on to your doubts. That's what the old man will do. He'll bury the doubts deep inside of himself. Never hang on to your doubts. Always confess your doubts to Jesus, who is the reason. And by the way, you're probably not doubting God. You're probably doubting your perception of God. In other words, you're doubting your old self. And doubting your old self makes room for your new self. Room for doubt makes room for faith, which is room for me. The new me, the free me, created by amazing grace. I think John the Baptist knew the severe mercy in the words of Christ, and every week you come, you sit here, and, and I think you know the severe mercy. The table of our Lord is the severe mercy. Every week you see Jesus Christ and him crucified, body broken and bloodshed, and you can't earn him. You can't buy him. You cannot control him. You cannot comprehend him, but just sit there and... He will comprehend you. It can be really good to work through all the philosophical, theological, tele all those arguments. I actually really love that stuff, and I would encourage you to do that, uh, to work through the arguments for the existence of God and the veracity of, of the scriptures and, and our gospel, but battling doubt and nurturing faith is not a matter of winning arguments. It's more like hearing a song that's playing all around you. It's, it's more like hearing a song and joining that song called the gospel. It's like the great poet once said, and it's whispered that soon, if we all call the tune, then the piper will lead us to reason. You see, reason's not a small thing that you can comprehend. 
Reason is the fabric of reality, the amazing grace of God. Reason is Jesus, and Jesus is the piper, and Jesus must comprehend you, and that's called faith. So you're like Mary. Actually, you are Mary. You are the bride of Christ. Who does he want to marry? You. Each week you come and sit outside the tomb and you're not offended by him. And so blessed are you. And your mourning will turn into dancing. For on the night that the word of God, the logos of God, the reason for all things was betrayed by us, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you, take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. This is the judgment of God. Does it offend you? For whatever is offended in you by this is cursed. It's cursed until it decides to not be offended or ceases to exist. And everything in you that is not offended <laughs> is blessed, is eternal is who you really are. So, so just close your eyes for a minute, would you? I mean, maybe you feel like John the Baptist in prison. I mean, this week working on this message, I just was like, I just don't exactly know what's going on here, but God, I feel like John the Baptist in prison. Maybe you feel like you've worked for Jesus and now, well, Jesus isn't working for you. He used to bless you. You see him bless other people. He blesses people around you, but, but, but they don't deserve to be blessed, and yet you, well, you kind of do, and, and look. Are you offended? That which offended in you is offended in you it is not you. It's the false you. It's, it's dead. Just look at it and, and let it be dead. And that which is not offended in you is eternal. And so look, John, why is his body broken and his blood shed? Well, he's broken and he's bleeding for you. He's dying with you that he might rise in you, even now as, as faith. faith. John, look and, and believe. Look, he weeps and he mourns with you that you would forever laugh and dance with him. God in Christ Jesus died, but he doesn't stay dead. He is amazing grace. And he's in you. Come to the table. Surrender that part of you that's offended. 
and rejoice in that part of you that's not offended. For that you is indestructible and eternal. That you is faith, hope. That you is love. And he who loves is born of God and knows God. doubts this morning or can answer all your doubts this morning but I can tell you this you've been judged in fact you came and you swallowed the judgment and so let it have its effect may it just like uh, judge the hell out of you and judge the heaven right into you because you see it is judgment whatever is offended in you at this at the grace of God well that's not you it's fading it will pass away so don't believe it just let it go and whatever is not offended in you whatever answers this with faith and hope and love well well that is you and and it's not just you you know scripture says that our spirit becomes one with his spirit God is revealing who you are in space and time who you eternally are and who are you you are faith hope and love you are choices that he makes in you throughout your life and everyone in this room is different because you because you you have faith in a different situation you hope in a different situation you have love in a different situation and he who loves is born of God and know God so so maybe you doubt God and, and maybe you also doubt yourself but this morning you surrendered your doubts that's the place that God's filling you with faith and you will never stop dancing because although God died, he didn't stay dead. He's alive. And he's alive in you, his body, his dancing body. In Jesus' name, believe.